BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, I'm joined by producer Mark Platty to discuss the, until now, previously unreleased David Bowie album, Toy. Rhino.com has you covered for holiday gifts for the music lover in your circle of friends and family. There's a ton of great box sets, including Crosby, Stills & Nash, Deja Vu 50th Anniversary Edition, the new Doors LA Woman 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition, and the new replacements, Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash Deluxe Edition. Looking for versions of The Pretender's first two albums on vinyl? We've got you covered. How about some cool merch for your cousin? Or a copy of Black Sabbath Technical Ecstasy for your head-banging brother? Head on over to Rhino.com to have a look at what's available. Well, producer Mark Platty started working with David Bowie in the studio in 1996 and soon found himself on stage as a full-blown member of Bowie's touring outfit. After they stole the show at Glastonbury in 2000, David took this live band into the studio to record an album of his songs from the mid-60s with updated arrangements. The album, entitled Toy, was finished but never released until recently when it came out as part of the new David Bowie album box set, Brilliant Adventure, out now, which is the fifth in the series of Bowie album box sets. Mark, thanks very much for joining us here on the Rhino Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Your handiwork is all over this new David Bowie box set, Brilliant Adventure, and kind of the the real cherry on top of all this is finally the formal release of Toy, the unreleased David Bowie studio album, which you produced. How did you meet David and come to work with him? I met him in kind of the the traditional way that you would meet people back in those days in uh, in studios in the music industry. Uh, when I started as an engineer, um, I was an assistant, and basically what would happen, you'd have to kind of get lucky and have a, a chance would have to be thrown at you where uh, whoever you were assisting, maybe they'd be, you know, they'd bail out and get a little better gig and they'd put you in the hot seat or the engineer gets sick and you'd just kind of, uh, you'd kind of move up like that. And that's pretty much what happened to me. And then uh, working in a high traffic studio, you also get to meet a lot of people. Uh, So it was a lot of that. It was a lot of meeting people, uh, 
A lot of accidents, uh, good accidents. And David was no exception in that uh, when I did meet him, I had my own pre-production room out of Philip Glass's uh, studio complex in Manhattan called The Looking Glass. I basically had my own room where I did my, uh, I did a lot of MIDI programming and things. And then you just used his studio for recording. David had an association with Philip because Philip had recently, uh, and this is 1996, uh, when I say recently, uh, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, yeah, Philip had recently done his own adaptation of David's Low album. Uh, so they knew each other and had, they'd had recent contact and everything. And David was looking for a new uh, place to work, you know, just to change it up a bit. And so he and his guitarist, musical director at the time, Reeves Gabrels, came to check it out. And they really liked it. Looking Glass was a great room. Uh, it had a window, which was very, uh, <laughs> uh, that was exceptional at the time. Uh, most studios were like, I called them luxurious bunkers. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you had all this great equipment. It could be plush, but, you know, there was no daylight. You yeah. never knew what time. Yeah. And they liked that. Everybody liked it, but they really did. They liked that. So um, uh, given that I was sort of the local uh, rock person, uh, in-house and I just, you know, I, I worked with them. It, it felt like I should be uh, paired with them. And there you have it. I was only going to do a week or two with David working on a, a song he'd begun in Switzerland. But as I would discover with him, if uh, he just ran across you and kind of saw something in you or liked you or what have you, you'd tend to stick around and, uh, I did for about seven years. I was going to say the better part of a decade. What made you and <laughs> what made you and he such a good fit? Uh, I think musically, uh, we really fit together. Um, I was willing to kind of go wherever he wanted in terms of taking chances and being adventurous. Uh, I'd say our sense of humor had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm, uh, when sure. you're kind of locked up when you're locked up with people for a while. And, you know, uh, it's nice to get the jokes and everything. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He and, he and Reeves and I were quite a nice little team in that respect. And, uh, so we just got along great right out of the gate. Yeah. Well, you know, a, a lot of people such as yourself, uh, worked together great in the studio, but it went beyond that because you started playing with him live as well, which is not always the case. You know, studio does not always translate to stage. It's usually never the case as far as uh, my experience up to that time was uh, very rare. Uh, but there was a moment after the second record that I did with David called Hours, where he was going to do this show on VH1 called Storytellers. And I knew they'd need an extra guitar player just doing like acoustic guitar stuff since the new record had some acoustic guitar textures and things on it. So I just thought, wow, you know, one show, that, that's it. Just play one show, you know? And yeah, right. It seemed like it for them. It was like, cool. You know, we know you, you know the stuff and, you know, sure. But then again, <laughs> with David, all of a sudden, you know, he's kind of moving the chess pieces or what have you. And then, you know, now I'm musical director in the band. It's wow. uh, completely, again, one of those chance things that used to happen all the time. Yeah. And then you mentioned Reeves Gabrels. Reeves is no longer in the band. And guitarist Earl Slick comes into the picture. 
uh, right yeah. before the Glastonbury show, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Before Glastonbury, though, you did some uh, shows at Roseland. That's right. Yeah. Those were uh, warm-up shows uh, for Glastonbury, so we could uh, perform a few shows together as a band before we, you know, yeah. <laughs> set out in front yeah. of, what, 80,000 people. And so, How did Earl's guitar playing frame Bowie's music differently than Reeves? Uh, God, he's just a completely uh, different kind of player, different yeah. kind of style. And uh, uh, when, when Slicky came back, we focused on some of that material. Actually, um, we revisited Station to Station quite a bit uh, during that little tour, the Glastonbury mini tour, as they called it. Uh, and uh, so, which, of course, he was perfect for having been there the first time around. Yeah, and, uh, sure. We, we kind of, uh, we, we turned our heads a bit more in that direction. You've mentioned that there was something really special about that band that did that run of shows, the mini tour, as you just called it. What was it that made that band different than Bowie's other bands? I don't know. For me, there was something, I guess I just say, there's something really rock and roll about it. Uh, um, whereas like with Reeves, there was an experimental edge to it. Uh-huh. Uh, Prior to that, and then after that, the band that did the Heathen tour, we just had a lot more depth because by then we had uh, Jerry Leonard on guitar who did a whole other thing that was added to it. But uh, with the Glastonbury band, it was just sort of, uh, I don't know, like two guitars, bass drums, backup singers. <laughs> it was really sort of straight up, but just really uh, on fire. Well, anybody who's seen that Glastonbury DVD or listened to the album, which came out a couple of years ago, it's it's a fabulous show. I mean, it really is something else. Yeah, there was something when, when Slick came in. I don't know. He just had the right attitude and the right energy and the right personality. That band was a really good collection of of uh, personalities, musical and, and everything else. It was just a, a nice moment. Right, right. So when did... David shared the idea that he wanted to go in the studio with this band and knock out a set of songs. The idea for this whole thing actually came from the previous fall uh, during that storyteller show. Okay. Uh, because in that little show, you are telling stories about songs and how they got written, what was going on when they were written, you know, yeah. all these things. Sure. And he wanted to talk about the mid sixties. Uh, so he needed a song do that so they were looking around for one and i believe it was reeves that found this song called can't help thinking about me on a compilation album uh, which was perfect actually because it was the first song david did as david bowie in 1966 so uh that really fell into place it was a really fun quirky kind of you know mid-60s rock song and he really enjoyed doing it. We all did. We all had a really a good time playing it. Uh, and he was, you know, have, he had a great time poking fun at the lyrics and uh, all the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, he'd written this when he's like 17 or 18 or whatever, however sure. old he was at the time. And, um, but uh, sang it with, uh, you know, 30 years of experience under his belt. And he just enjoyed doing that after it. We continued to play it. Um, that fall on the on the hours tour and then he had the idea of well let's just do let's do a few of these songs let's find a bunch of them and we'll just record them 
as a group, as opposed to the original versions, which were all done over a period of a few years and have different producers and musicians and all the rest. So having the same band would be, uh, would, would provide a lot more cohesion than yes. the original version. Uh, yeah. And uh, interesting, we're talking in the shadow of the uh, <laughs> of the Get Back documentary, which I'm sure everybody that's listening to this has seen. Probably, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, because the decision to do this uh, was to do it live in the studio, kind of like what the Beatles did after these few years of making these sort of multi-layered, multi-track recordings. We're pulling in, building songs from the ground up in the studio, which is what David had been doing. Oh, it's what everybody had been doing in the 90s. I mean, all of most of my work in the 90s was the same thing, like uh, starting from the ground up with drums and things and building on top of it, even writing in the studio, artists coming in with nothing and just coming up with it there. But this was going to be a return, like a return to the roots, you know, where you, you learn the songs and you perform them together at the same time, exactly the way that the Beatles did. So I found that to be interesting when I was watching the documentary, like, oh, wow, we just did that. (laughs) That's exactly, exactly. well, I shouldn't say we just did that because we just did that 21 years ago, but that's sort of the exactly the same thing. But now it's getting the spotlight it deserves. So there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. So, but right after Glastonbury, you guys went back and did a BBC radio theater show that was like two days after Glastonbury. So obviously that's that's being recorded. So you kind of got a little bit of that red light vibe, like we're recording these songs before you went in to record. Did that help you kind of frame your, put your mind around, okay, we're going to be recording these. I play them. With a little more focus, did it change the way you thought about the songs at all? Other than getting a chance to play together again and uh, and run through them, I don't know, maybe a little bit. I mean, just the more you play together, the better it's going to be and the more you get used to each other. Although um, that band was... (laughs) <laughs> we're pretty used to each other and very comfortable. Of course, when you get into a studio, it can be completely different. But the place we went to, the studio uh, we went to, which was Sear Sound, uh, the room was great for us. It was big enough and uh, we didn't feel like kind of cramped. It had windows too, which, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> and we could see each other and all of that kind of lent to having a really great and fun atmosphere. Yeah. Talk about the way that you guys set up in the studio. Now, referencing Get Back, everybody sees that, you know, the Beatles aren't wearing headphones. They actually had a PA running in the room while they were tracking. And there's that long sequence of Glenn Johns putting the speakers just in the right position, I'm assuming. So they try to stay out of the microphones as much as possible while still being able, the guys being able to hear themselves. Exactly. How did you guys, did you guys separate or did you, let's get some bleed on this to give it an old school feel. Tell us about the setup in the studio. We weren't quite that old school, actually. (laughs) We, We did have headphones. And But we were all set up together. Amps were kind of isolated uh, either in little rooms they had there or behind these baffles or gobos. David was in a separate vocal booth, although we were playing pretty loud and there was a bit of leakage um, Mm -hmm. between some of the mics, which was no big deal, given that most of the takes were, you know, they were pretty intact, actually. Uh, So that was not a that was not a problem at all. Was David tracking his keeper vocals live with the band? Yes, apparently. I mean, that was sort of yeah. the uh, uh, the idea we would track together. But um, 
a lot of his vocals were just the first go. Uh, wow. Just because he could be like that in the studio. He really could just dial in and do it. On this session, the energy was just really right. And he was playing off the band. That was something I really wanted to get, which uh, just to backtrack to the previous fall, uh, when I started to perform with him, I really noticed <laughs> how different his energy was on stage as far as how he was singing and everything, which is people do that. They do have a different kind of uh, uh, energy they dial into when there's an audience and all that. And I just said, wow, I really want to, if there's a way I could get that uh, on a recording, that would just be fantastic. And I felt like we really did just because he really connected with this band. Um, we connected with him and everybody was in a real happy place and happy to be there doing it together. Yeah. How did you and Earl divide up the guitar parts? I mean, that's not just for the studio. Obviously you probably had your arrangements pretty well down for the live shows as well, but how did you divide those up? Well, I guess for Glastonbury and all that, I guess a lot of times I kind of took the Carlos role and let Slicky be the Slicky role, yeah. uh, which was for me pretty cool having grown up with that. So, uh, and in the New York area, hearing like, you know, all of this kind of music. So doing the more kind of funky bits was not such a stretch for me and actually quite a lot of fun, especially doing them with, uh, <laughs> Doing them with with Slick, you know, and feeling like, wow, I'm really kind of part of this, uh, you know, this guitar lineage, you know, playing off of him. Yeah. But in the studio, it was just kind of like, oh, well, you do that lead part and I can kind of be under it. Um, well, things like that or just coming up with things on the spot. Some of the songs have electric 12 string, which tended to be my thing. So that kind of was set ahead of time. You know, we kind of knew, like, if I'm playing a 12-string, he would figure something else out against that. Uh, but it was pretty effortless, actually. And he had this idea. After we would do it, we would get a basic take of a song. He had this idea of, hey, Marky. He'd call me Marky. Marky. Uh, David would call me Marcus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> call me, but it was very funny, this whole thing. And he said, we should just play acoustic guitar to all these songs. That's kind of like a little Keith Richards Rolling Stones trick. It adds a little texture underneath the whole thing. And I said, okay, you know, sure. So, you know, Pete Keppel, our engineer, set up a couple of mics. He'd take one, I'd take the other. we just bang a tune down from the beginning. Uh, and that would be that. And it'd be part of the song. Uh, except that later on, there was a little development with those acoustic guitar tracks where... Um, when I was mixing, David heard me just kind of putting up tracks and as one does. And uh, at one point I had a combination of just his lead vocal and these acoustic guitar tracks. And as he was uh, <laughs> prone to do from time to time, he would just jump up from the couch and go, hey, what is that? I say, well, that's just your voice and the acoustics. I'm auditioning stuff. And he's like, well, that's cool. Can we just make some mixes like that? And sure why not that's you know another five minutes out of our lives to record it it's like right. no big deal let's yeah. just do it and so i did it for some of the songs uh, but they were really pretty cool so um we decided why don't i just finish those this year and now there's going to be a whole cd of just these acoustic uh interpretations of the songs oh that's great that's great so it seems like things went pretty fast how long did these sessions last for toy I don't know, two and a half, three weeks maximum. Not long at all. Yeah. It was very much uh, getting it done quick. 
it's fun when a session just keeps moving forward and you don't get stuck on anything. Yeah, there was definitely none of that. <laughs> none of that at all. There wasn't any sort of time. It was the idea wasn't to really uh wasn't to think too deeply about this. It wasn't going to be like Earthling or outside or, you know, it was not going to be trying to find a voice, trying to find a sound or chase an idea and pursue an idea. This was just like, you know, we're playing music and that's it. Yeah. So it was supposed to be fast. Sure, sure. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, a couple of extra musicians that weren't with you at Glastonbury came in for the sessions, Lisa Germano and Jerry Leonard. What did they bring to the music? They just brought a little extra color after the fact. David thought, let's have a little, you know, a little extra something. Uh, and and it all kind of happened again, really by chance, where I ran into Jerry in the studio in in back at the Looking Glass studio. Oh, you know, we were just talking. I thought you'd be cool on this one song called Shadow Man. You know, it just it was a pretty straight up kind of piano and vocal song. We had a little bit of touches. There's a little bit of acoustic guitar, a little bit of bass, but you know, it was pretty much fine as the, as it was that way. And I thought, well, you know, he does this, Jerry does this very interesting kind of ambient spacey uh, guitar work. And I thought, well, what would it be like if you're in there? <laughs> you yeah. know, let's just see what that's like. And, uh, and David really liked it. And the And so Jerry ended up on, I think, another couple of songs or something uh, after that. Well, he ended up in the band, didn't he? That was, again, (laughs) Um, And Lisa was just a complete fluke. I went out to see this band called The Eels. I just went to see a gig. Our engineer, Pete Kepler, was engineering their live sound. And uh, I went to see them, and and, uh, Lisa Germano was playing with them. And I'd known of her for a long time. I actually went to the same college she did in Indiana, but she was a couple years ahead of me, and I knew of her then. But then she left to join John Mellencamp's band and then started her own career. Little paper and fire action there? Uh, Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the deal. That's the time. But she'd done her own really, you know, very interesting solo records. And I saw her with the eels and she was playing, you know, electric violin and recorder and um, accordion. And I thought, well, you know, that would be really cool, you know, to have her have her um, try to add that on this record. Just on a song or two, see what happens. And uh, I ran it by David, who was like, sure, you know, so um, we brought her in to do that but she ended up playing on almost everything he was just really uh he really just went with it they they got on so well from the beginning uh i just kind of let them alone and push buttons and let them work it out <laughs> yeah, that's awesome yeah. it was fun to see him kind of like you could see him dial into somebody 
you know, a fellow traveler like that. And it was just yeah. like, okay, stand back and record it. Don't do a thing. Just let them, <laughs> let them get on with it. Let know? it be. Another Beatles reference. There we hey, go. Yes, hey, yes, hey, yes, yes. Hey, hey, so <laughs> let's talk about, let's go into some of the songs here on the record in a little more details. There's one song at the end of the record, Toy, Your Turn to Drive, that has mm -hmm. an interesting story. Why don't you tell us about that one? When we would be recording, sometimes we'd get to the end of, the, of a song and we would just start to kind of jam, you know, just start playing again. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the times uh, it was Mike Garson who played piano and organ on this record. He would instigate that. <laughs> he would just start playing a little figure and uh, we'd all just jump back on it again. You know, the first song, which is I Dig Everything. At the end of that, we uh, we got into a pretty involved and long jam at the end of that. It was like three or four minutes long or something. And uh, and we listened to that, you know, a few weeks later or so. And, and David was like, we could just make a song out of that. I could make a new song out of that. You know, even yeah. though it's from an old song, it's yeah. kind of a new song. So we ended up doing that, even though it was done live, sort of returning to the... Uh, like the earthling method of sort of rearranging this thing in a computer and adding little bits and pieces here. And, uh, you know, we added, I think some new background vocals, acoustic guitar, added Lisa and added the stylophone. That was a nice thing. That was, uh, one of the first uh, reappearances of the stylophone was on, uh, was on that song. Tell us about the stylophone. What is the stylophone? Uh, hey, it was in Get Back too. Actually, thinking about it, they, was it? It was. It's this little box. It's this. God, it's. I don't know. Maybe like it's like about a four by six picture. Say it's about that okay. big. And it's basically got a piano keyboard on it that's flat and metal, and it's got a stylus that you, when you press on it, it makes a tone. Just makes a kind of nice little buzzy tone, and then you can make little melodies on it just by by moving this little pen. It was funny to see it and get back because uh, that was around the time that that thing kind of caught fire, that little toy. And, and David actually uses it that year on Space Oddity. Oh, wow. Uh, and when you hear this sound, then you can hear it in space. Ah, then you hear it in space. I go, that's the style of You start recognizing it once you, yeah. Yeah, right. it's, oh, it's the sound of that thing. It's like when you uh, buy a new car, all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. You know, on the street, <laughs> right? Exactly. It's like, oh, that's, that's what that car is. Ha ha. And that, uh, I don't think it had been on any of his records since then. I could be wrong about that. It made its reappearance there, and it plays this little melody in a couple of the breaks. It's just a totally different sound that we uh, that's in that song. wondering was the band aware of the previous recorded versions or did everybody approach these songs like they hadn't heard them before i don't know actually i don't know if everybody heard the songs i believe we did but the idea wasn't to 
really replicate them or pay tribute to them. The thought was like, let this band be what this band is uh, with this music and see, you know, where they take it, you know, on this day in this year, like, how are they going to play it? Uh, so I probably think, you know, we played the songs, you know, we and said, here, here it is. And, you know, I'd written out like a basic kind of chord chart. So people had a roadmap. And that was it, though. And they kind of, uh, you know, became what they would become yeah, <laughs> just right, in, right. in that instant, you know. Yes. Yeah, so you just let everybody paint it their color. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, and that was a very typical thing of David was to um, like a casting director. Almost. He would just gather these people together and just, you know, wait for the <laughs> wait for the chemical reaction, you know, and see kind of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Conversation piece. David has a very unique way of harmonizing with himself. The way that it blends, there's really nothing that sounds like David singing with himself. Did he have a theory for doubling versus harmonizing? Not really. Most of that stuff was, uh, you know, it was on the fly. And I, I mean, I say on the fly, but again, yeah. this is somebody that had been doing this for a very long time. So like all of us, you know, I'm sure he's was reaching into a bag of tricks that he'd, you know, built up over a, a long period. And he could have these very different vocal sounds and different approaches. And, and that song is so, it's really low in his register. And that's really, uh, which is unique on this record that uh, that's the only one with that kind of sound. So it kind of starts from there and, uh, and it's built up from there, from, from starting in that range. I live the closest door Owned by the street Often calls me down to eat And he jokes about his broken English Tries to be a friend to me Baby Loves the Way. I hear a little Sid Barrett influence in this one. And I know David covered some early Pink Floyd Sid compositions back in the day. Did he ever talk about that? Not with me, no. I didn't really pick up on, on it being sort of a, a Sid Barrett thing. I don't know if that's conscious. I mean, that's where it gets interesting. Like if <laughs> You know, because you're, you're sort of calling up your references all the time. Uh, when you're doing things like this and, and you don't know if it's something you're doing on purpose or it's just happening because that's what's coming through you. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, yes, you, you set out to say, oh, well, you know, it's, I like the feel of that. Maybe let's start in that sort of realm. But I don't think we did. I don't, I don't recall that. Yeah. Then again, yeah. 21 years ago, I'm not sure sometimes. Can't help thinking about me. This one, 
I really enjoyed because I think it's a perfect example of new and old Bowie crashing into each other. Like his vocal approach in the verses is very modern Bowie to me. But then when you get to that chorus line, man, it's straight back to his 60s delivery. Like his phrasing of the verses and then the way he just hits you with that fast phrasing of the chorus. I just found that like a real juxtaposition and really interesting. It's interesting, yeah, where he he kind of... um he calls in this almost, well, it's like an authority, like a sense of authority or confidence. And, and he can kind of really uh, swim around the beat a bit and, uh, yeah, and play yeah. it like that, like in the verses. And, yeah, exactly. You know, but then in the chorus, he's just firing in all, on all cylinders again. Him against the background singers. There's just something, I don't know, there's something really particular about it that on this record, it, it really works. You mentioned that you mixed toy. Did these mixing sessions go as fast as the recording sessions since it seemed to, it was pretty straightforward? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It was all pretty, the whole thing, the whole record was actually faster than anything I'd done, I, I don't know, at that time. That must um, have been refreshing. Or since. It, it was actually, um, it was so different for me just because of the time that I'd begun doing this, which was in the mid 80s. And, uh, Records just weren't done like this. The closest thing I'd say would be the BBC mixing, which we did really fast. That was just kind of put up the faders, get it sounding cool, and then just go with that. But that was partly given that there just wasn't a whole lot of time to do that. But also, there wasn't a whole lot of point to belaboring these things either. It's just like, well, here's how it here is. Here it is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, well, experiment with a different keyboard here. There was not because there was none of that, you know, right. with uh, you know, mixing like live performances. I mean, I'd been doing that for him the previous couple of years um, anyway, things that they'd be doing on tour. And and, and they were usually pretty fast, um, but not a recording, not a recording that was that fast. That yeah. was pretty, pretty much the first one. Well, we all know that Toy wasn't released originally after you guys recorded it. And there's differing reports as to why. Some say David wanted to rush release the record, but the technology didn't exist yet to get it out in that way. But other reports say that his label at the time, Virgin, their schedule was so packed, they didn't want to squeeze it in. Do you recall what went down? Yeah, they could not move fast enough on all counts. It's not like it is today where um, you can put things out. Uh, and he knew that then because we had um, the first thing I did with him when I met him was working on this song called Telling Lies, which became the first Internet single release. We were all pretty into that because yeah. it was like, oh, Mix the record, put it online, people get it. It was right. just this instant kind of, you know, the instant gratification, which we've all become accustomed to. Yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> we experienced right. that in 1996. And we did it again with a, uh, a live record we, we mixed called uh, Live and Well, which was a fan-only release. And again, it was like, mix it, uh, send it out. 
quick. Yeah. So he knew this could be the case, but um, labels couldn't, you know, they had too many moving parts, release schedules. They just couldn't, couldn't get it together for something like this. It just wasn't possible at the time. And given the kind of record it was, again, not like a big statement as far as like, here's new sound, new approach, whatever. It wasn't that kind of a thing. And he'd already begun moving somewhere else. While mixing this song, uh, we recorded like two new songs that he had just written. So he was already going down the road, you know? Yeah, right. How did he feel about it? What was his reaction to the record not being able to come out then? Well, nobody likes that. (laughs) Nobody's happy about like a record you've worked on and it doesn't see the light of day when you want it to. It happened to me a few times. First time it happens, you're just like, you know, you're pretty livid, you know, but after a while you, you get used to some of the industry dynamics and while you don't like it, you kind of go, okay, well, there will be a plan B for that. And you kind of, you move forward. And here we are. And here we are moving forward. Yes, moving forward. It's finally out <laughs> posthumously, sadly, because I think he would really have enjoyed seeing how everybody's digging it and is excited about it. I think so, too. I really do. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've worked with an incredible list of artists throughout your career. What made David Bowie stand out from everybody else? Just because he was so different in his approach and so singular in his approach. And for me, David just validated everything I always wanted this career to be. This constantly reaching to do something different, to push boundaries, to get out of your comfort zone. And that's what I always wanted this to be. I didn't want to ever repeat myself and and have to do like the same record over and over, uh, the same style over and over. To me, that just felt like it would be really boring to do this all the time. Uh, And of course, (laughs) he was exactly in that mold. You know, he, he was always curious and wanting to discover something. And I just found that just tremendously exciting. I just never knew where we were going to go, and I couldn't ask for more than that. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Appreciate your time today. It's great talking with you about Toy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Bowie's album Toy is available now as part of the recently released fifth David Bowie album box set, Brilliant Adventure. Then on January 7th, 2022, the day before David's birthday, Toy Box, a special edition of the album, will receive its long-awaited official release, finally making the legendary previously unreleased album available in both 3CD and 6x10 vinyl versions. Thanks very much for tuning in. Have a very happy holiday season, and we'll see you back here on the Rhino Podcast in 2022. Take care out there. Thanks very much for tuning in. 
Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.